and Glenn co-lead pastors of this church plant two years in, praise God. And during that time, we've been processing how do we get men of integrity, men who are elder qualified, uh, men with character that's described in the Bibles to come alongside with us and oversee CLB. So by God's grace, the past four months, we've been meeting with a group of hand-selected overseers. We call them the A-team, also known as the advisory team. So they keep us accountable. They encourage us. uh, We disciple with them. And so this morning, we have a unique opportunity. We're going to welcome Cliff Tulsi up. He's going to be teaching. He's a part of the advisory team. Go ahead. Come up here, Cliff. And he's going to be teaching this morning. So Cliff is not only a part of the advisory team, he's married up in Carrie Tulsi, who was up here last February, and she shared her testimony of God's goodness. Uh, What I love about Cliff is that he is very uh, aware of God's presence and sensitive to his goodness. He's a man who does counseling for a living, and he's had over 30 years of pastoral ministry between him and his bride, Carrie Tulsi. And so we are going to be massively blessed by him getting up here and sharing his teaching gift with us. Uh, Go ahead, church, in support for what's going to happen up here and him delivering God's word. Would you reach a handout? We just want to pray over Cliff. Uh, God, the Holy Spirit, we thank you so much for your gifting and anointing on Cliff. God, thank you that he's a man who's persevered through temptation and trials and difficult times the last 30 plus years. We thank you for him being a man of integrity at the house and him being a man full of wisdom and full of your spirit and full of prayer. Uh, This morning, would you anoint his mouth, guide his mind, governor's tongue, God, guard his heart that we would hear directly from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. morning. What a wonderful honor and pleasure it is for me to be with you this morning, but I have One question for Roy and Glenn. If we're considered the A-team, can I be Mr. T? Can I do (laughs) I just thought I'd ask, but. (laughs) No, seriously, it's, it's an amazing privilege to stand here before you this morning. I'm humbled and I'm honored by the request of our pastors to take this sacred pulpit this morning. As they have mentioned, uh, I have been, we have been in pastoral ministry for over 30 years, and it's been well over a year since I've taken the pulpit, so if I'm a little rusty, please forgive me. But first of all, you are aware of my wife, Carrie. She was here and shared her testimony in February, and I can honestly share with you today that because of her and part of her is one of the reasons why I'm here today. She is my beautiful bride of over 33 years. She is the mother of my five children. She is my best friend. She is my hero. And she is my ministry partner. And to say that God has graced us and give us the opportunity to be in ministry together for over 30 years is a blessing that I oftentimes feel I don't deserve. But I'm here today in your midst because of God's grace and his wonderful compassion. And I want to thank CLB for taking us in and our family in well over a year ago. Some of my children participate here in the ministry at CLB, and I'm so thankful for that. 
your pastors have so graciously welcomed us in and allowed us to serve as the Lord leads, and I'm so thankful for that. And just so you know, the month of October is what we call Pastors Appreciation Month. And so I want to publicly declare how much I appreciate our pastoral team. They're young, they're young enough to be my sons, but they are, they are an amazing, they are an amazing group of men. Let's give them a hand, right? They are an amazing group of men. They are compassionate. Their, their passion is amazing. Their service to the Lord is amazing. Their humility, their zeal, their honoring of the word of God is soul authority. It's just so inspirational. And men, thank you for your leadership. And may we do whatever is necessary to see that you, by the grace of God, are successful. Also, I want to thank my, uh, my wonderful sm City Lights small group, the Silver Bullets, right here. <laughs> They're the Silver Bullets. Uh, they have been a great source of support for my wife and I. They are our city group. We've been together for quite a while, and, and I had run one request of them. You know, in February, they all rallied together and sat in the second row to support my wife. And I said, if there's one thing you can do for me, do the same thing or I'll be jealous, right? So they're here this morning and supporting me, and I so do appreciate that. Well, you may recall that we have been endeavoring every Sunday morning in a series entitled A Church After God's Own Heart. And I was asked to consider the topic of compassion. And I thought, boy, what a, what a fitting what a fitting topic for me because I'm only here this morning because of God's mercy, love, and compassion that he has shared with me. That's the only reason why I'm here. And I know for many of you, that's the reason why you're here. And Kevin, I want to thank you and the praise team for leading us in such a beautiful way into the entrance of scripture. I couldn't have picked better music to really set the stage of our time together as we consider the compassion of Jesus. So a church that, ref that, a church that is after the heart of God is a church that reflects the heart of God. And if a church is going to reflect the heart of God, this church, every member of his body must be a member who can exhibit compassion. And beloved, in my studies in preparation for today, I realized that one cannot be good in exhibiting compassion unless they have first received it. We wouldn't know how to do it unless we were aware of all the compassion poured out upon us. And so I believe that will be, that theme will run throughout my message this morning. You know, what does it mean when a pastor takes off his watch? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> but there is a clock there, so that's good. I don't have to take it off. Well, several years ago, Hugh Rudd, a CBS anchorman and reporter, was mugged just outside his New York City apartment complex. He was beaten and knocked down, but remained conscious with his eyes open but he was unable to move. 
He was right next to his doorstep, but all he could do was moan. Hours later, after being rescued, he recounted the frightening scene as he lay there, watching people walk past him in the darkness, ignoring his moans for help. He said that even the milkman came early that morning, set the milk cans down next to him, and walked away. No one stopped to see what was wrong until later that morning. I have heard in recent days that even 911 professionals who have been trained to respond to people who call in for help aren't always willing to help. There was a news report of a woman hiding in a store as an active shooter was on a rampage. She dialed 911 and whispered for help. Apparently, the operator scolded the woman, the woman for whispering and then hung up. Another 911 operator received a call from a terrified woman whose car was stalled in a flooded road and it was filling up with water. It had all happened so suddenly that she was afraid to open her door or window. She called to ask for a rescue and for advice on what to do in the meantime. Instead of sending help, the operator began lecturing her for being foolish enough to drive in the storm, saying the woman should have known better. She lectured on until the line went dead and the woman drowned. Some of you may remember in 1964, a woman by the name of Kitty Genovese in New York City. Kitty Genovese was murdered one frightful day in 1964 while 37 people watched it happen and did nothing. Legislators and lawmakers have struggled with this issue of human responsibility, trying to determine when and how people should be willing to help others. In fact, every state in our country today has created what they now officially call Good Samaritan Laws. But my question for you today is, can we legislate compassion? Can humans alone, apart from the love and mercy and grace of God, exhibit the kind of passion today that our fellow human beings need in light of suffering. Our response to the world's suffering depends on what we force ourselves to notice. Can I illustrate that for you this morning? Our youngest daughter, Abby, who you had a chance to meet a while ago, she just got married a few weeks ago to a wonderful young man, and they now live in Texas. And they, before the wedding, have been preparing uh, to run a marathon in December. They're such underachievers. Um, but in, while she was training, one day while she was training, she was going to do a 10-mile run. And while she was running on the path that was chosen, she saw a woman, a little younger than me, laying on the pathway unconscious. And all of a sudden, she stopped her run 
She kneeled down to see if she was okay. She took her cell phone out and called 911. And the 911 operator asked if Abby knew how to do CPR, and she said she did. And Abby performed CPR on this woman for almost 30 minutes before rescue came. The rescue squad came and took over, resuscitated her, brought her to the hospital. A day or two later, Abby got a phone call from the nursing staff of this hospital and said, had you not done what you did on that pathway, she would no longer be with us. So let me repeat that. Our response to the world's suffering depends on what we force ourselves to notice. What do you force yourself to notice this morning? What is in your periphery? What is within your focus that will allow you to respond with a spirit of compassion to those who are in need around you? Thankfully, when Jesus looks at a lost world, he feels compassion. And then he does something about it. So let me first of all define compassion so we have an idea on what we're talking about. In the ancient world, compassion was in short supply, according to commentator David Bast. Maybe you feel the same way about our world today. It was rare enough in the everyday world of people, but it was virtually unknown as a divine attribute. As a rule, the gods of Greece and Rome were heartless. They were cold and indifferent to human suffering. And people followed this divine influence. Some ancient philosophers taught that having sympathy for one's fellow human beings was not only unnecessary, but it was actually a sign of weakness. Augustine illustrated the difference between pagan and Christian attitudes with a remark by the Stoic philosopher Seneca by saying, compassion is the vice of a feeble soul. But my friends, how different is the God of the Bible? How different is the God in whom we came into worship this morning? Amen? His character is compassion. His delight is to show mercy. I read in the book of Jonah, chapter 4, in verse 2, an argument that Jonah is having with God, and he's arguing about the attributes of God. He is complaining about this very thing. He says, oh Lord, is it not this why I said why you wanted me to go into your country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, I knew this would happen. I knew you were a God, a gracious God, and merciful and slow to anger. That's the problem, God. You're too full of mercy. That's the problem. You, you are filled with grace and you overflow with compassion. That is the God in whom we serve. That is the God in whom we worship. The Latin root of compassion literally means to suffer with. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 and verse 15 that we we weep with those who weep, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. Isn't that the picture we have in our minds when we think of compassion? 
I believe it is. Compassion is the ability to feel along with the other person. The willingness to sympathize with the pain of one's fellow humans. More than that, compassion is the pity that stirs one to act in order to help those who suffer. Augustine said it again. What is compassion but a kind of fellow feeling in our hearts for another's misery, which compels us to come to his help by every means in our power? So let's look at the compassion of Jesus, shall we? Let's look at how he demonstrated compassion and then let's see how that then can prompt us to act as a church that desires to reflect the heart of God. You see, the Bible often tells us that God is compassionate. But in the person of Jesus, it shows us that he is compassionate. Jesus' whole ministry could be summed up in this one word. He felt compassion toward those who suffered physically. Listen a moment, if you, were, if you would, to these excerpts from the Gospels. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him. Speaking of a leper in Mark 1, 41. Jesus in pity touched their eyes. Speaking of the two blind men outside of Jericho in Matthew chapter 20. He had compassion on the crowds and he healed their sick, Matthew 14, 14. You see, Jesus had compassion for those who suffer physically. But he also felt compassion for people who were suffering from emotional distress. One day while walking past a little village, Jesus saw a funeral procession in which a widow was going out to bury her only son. And when the Lord saw, when the Lord saw her, Luke 7 says, his heart broke. And Jesus restored the woman's son to life. Most of all, Jesus had compassion on people who were suffering spiritually. Here is a brief excerpt from, from the end of the ninth chapter of Matthew. And this is my chief text for you this morning. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This snapshot, you might say, of Jesus' activity shows the three areas of concern that comprised his public ministry. It was these areas that made up his ministry. No matter where he went, no matter who he came uh, across, this was his ministry. First, he preached, didn't he? He preached. He went about preaching 
the gospel of the kingdom. That is, Jesus announced publicly the good news that in him, God's presence and rule has come personally in the world. And by placing their faith in him, the promised kingdom to Israel in the Old Testament would be established. And then second, Jesus taught people about how they should live if they were his disciples. He explained in detail all that it meant to follow him. In chapters 5 through 7 of the book of Matthew, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount, right? One of the greatest discourses that Jesus has in the Gospels. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records the heart of the ethical and religious teaching of Jesus in this sermon. And finally, because Jesus was also concerned about people's physical needs, he frequently healed those who were sick, injured, or oppressed by evil spirits. But what stands out here, beloved, what stands out here in this summary statement about the ministry of Jesus is its comprehensiveness. Jesus had an all-inclusive approach to meeting physical and spiritual needs. He did it everywhere. Matthew says that Jesus went through all of the towns and all of the villages, teaching, preaching, and healing. You see, Jesus went only as the Holy Spirit led him. He did everything in ministry in accordance to the leading of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't concerned about size or population or if, it was, if he was wasting his time. Jesus went everywhere to help everyone. This is how he did ministry. So when you hear our pastors say that we are Jesus-centered, spirit-led, and disciple-making, it's because of this snapshot that Jesus provides for us in the Gospels. That our spiritual leadership needs to have such a vision of not just the people right here, but all over the world. All over the world. Not just for Bennington and Omaha and the state of Nebraska and for the United States, but for the entire world. I had a wonderful conversation the other day with Glenn talking to me about global missions. Having a vision globally. Could you imagine? Could you imagine being concerned <coughs> about those who are in the poorest areas of Africa, such as Malawi? We talked about that. Why did we? Because that was the snapshot of where Jesus was. That was the heart of Jesus. And isn't a church that reflects the heart of God, a church that pursues the heart of God, that acts out of the heart of God? I mean, after all, are we not made in the image of God? Isn't that one of the greatest uh, mysteries of all, that we have Christ in you, the hope of glory? When people see you, who do they see? Do they see you or do they see the Lord Jesus? My prayer is, is that they see the Lord Jesus. And if they do see the Lord Jesus, it's because we reflect the heart of Jesus, isn't it? What a concept, what a privilege, what a joy. And like Glenn shared with us in our tip time this morning, we have all the resources necessary to do just that. 
There is no reason to be afraid. There's every reason to be trusting. There's every reason under the sun to be a heart that, a church that reflects the heart of God. Amen? Amen. One more time. Amen? Amen. Good. Sorry, this, this is the pastor of old. Sorry. <laughs> but, but it's true, isn't it? It's true. Beloved, we are children of the king. We are children of God. And it's time that you and I walk as children of God. We are children of God who have the victory in Jesus, right? Thanks be to God, Paul says, that has given us the victory in Christ. So are we walking as victors or are we walking as victims? A church that reflects the heart of God will be a church that walks in victory. And I guarantee you that you will not have to look very far to see someone who needs to experience the very victory that Christ can give us. Amen? Oh, that's compassion. So let's look at this verse a minute, shall we? Matthew chapter 9, and i got to be careful of my time, sort of. <laughs> I mean, they can't fire me, right? So, I mean, that's good. You know? <laughs> so Matthew chapter 9, let's go back there again. Here we read, it says right here. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and healing every disease and every affliction. Look at this. And when he saw the crowds, the first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus looked. Jesus looked. You know, we can see here that Jesus is a busy man, isn't he? He's got things to do and places to go. But then something happened that caused him to stop for a moment. Please don't miss this. Matthew says, and when he saw the crowds. Why would he say that? How do you not see the crowds? Beloved, may I say to you this morning that it's possible for us to do ministry and not see the crowds. Pastors, it's possible for you to do ministry and not see the people in whom you're ministering to. Matthew wanted us to see where the heart of Jesus was. Matthew writes, in the midst of his busy, hectic life, while already doing ministry, Jesus paused. He lifted his eyes, he looked out, and he saw the crowds, the people that he was ministering to. Oh my goodness. How often do we do ministry in our city groups, with our neighbors, on Sunday mornings, in my counseling office, and we do ministry, but we don't see the ones in whom we're ministering to? Wow. But he didn't do that. He paused. He stopped. He saw. He lifted his eyes. Maybe they were the crowds who were clinging to him and following him, hoping to, for help. Maybe they were just people who were curious, indifferent, and just passing by. Nevertheless, he saw them. Now here's something that I'd like you to take home with you. Of course, I'd like you to take home the whole message. But I know better than that. But here's a statement that I want you to, to, to grab hold of. And maybe talk about in your city groups. How you feel about things. And how you think about the world 
even what you invest your time in doing depends a lot on where you're looking. Amen? Let me repeat it. How you feel about things and think about the world, even what you invest your time in doing, depends a lot on where you're looking. Beloved, can I have a personal moment with you this morning? This is not one of conviction because I am not the Holy Spirit. This is one of observation. How many of you and I experience people who are doing nothing but this? Where are they looking? Say it. Where are they, what are they looking at? The phones. And how often are they looking at their phones? My wife and I go to dinner and we see couples sitting in a restaurant on their phones. I go to the grocery store and I'm driving in the parking lot and I can't believe how people are saved. They're looking at their phones while going into the parking lot. Everywhere I go, most people in whom I talk with are glued to their phones. So think of that, and let me repeat this statement again. How you feel about things, and you think about the world, even what you invest your time in doing depends a lot on where you are looking. Maybe it's time for me to challenge all of us to spend less time on this and let more time on each other. Isn't it time you know, you and I would agree, you and I would agree that we're living in a world that's hurting. We're living in a world that's suffering, probably greater now than ever since 2020, right? Ever since COVID, everything has gone down, amen? Most things, mental health has gone sky. I mean, my, my business hasn't been busier, unfortunately. Anxiety is through the roof. Depression is through the roof. Uncertainty about politics and the future, through the roof. Everybody is asking that if, if there is such a God, then why is he allowing all of this to happen? You see, in the midst of this, when the church of Jesus Christ can make its biggest impact, where are we looking? Right here. Like Paul would say, these things should never be, right? They shouldn't. We need to be prompted and motivated to see how God sees Many of us have a tendency towards tunnel vision. We zero in on our own lives, our own immediate needs and concerns, our own families, and perhaps rarely look up and out. We don't stop and take the time to see the needs around us. So we don't see the crowds. We don't see the masses of people who are truly suffering. I've learned this lesson by observing my wife. As you know, my wife is suffering with stage four cancer. And there have been several days, weeks, and months that we had no idea of our longevity of life and still don't. But what amazes me about her is even in the midst of that, she's writing down prayer requests and following up on people who need prayer. And weeping for those who are hurting. I'm going, how do you do that? That's what it looks like when the church reflects the heart of God. 
Well, not only did Jesus look, but he felt. You see, he did more, however, than just see the crowds, right? He did more than just see the crowds of suffering people. He also felt for them. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. And here's that word again, compassion. A good way to interpret this could be that Jesus' heart broke for those in whom he was able to see. Because the heart is the organ that we identify with compassion, caring, and love. Many commentators state that for the Hebrews, compassion was also identified metaphorically with an organ of the body. But they, lo but they located it a little bit lower. To them, to the Hebrews, compassion was something that you felt in your intestines. I know, a little strange. I won't go there, but a little strange. <laughs> so, so when Matthew says that Jesus had compassion on the crowd, you know what that literally means? This is when I love to be able to go a little bit deeper and maybe see the Greek or just see the historical context of it. You know what that really says when it says that Jesus had compassion? This is what it says. It says literally that Jesus' guts were churning as he saw these suffering people. Wow. Beloved, I'm not saying today that the moment you leave, when you see somebody suffering, that your guts are churned. But isn't that, isn't that a point of reference that we need to consider when we want to become a church that reflects the heart of God? To be so moved that you can't ignore the churning of your intestines. Wow. So what is your image of God like this morning? For many, God may be some remote, indifferent, unfeeling figure who really doesn't care about the pain and suffering that we endure. Beloved, let me ask you this. I, this, is what I, this is what I encounter a lot. When people are in the midst of deep suffering, personal suffering, physical suffering, emotional suffering. What happens, what happens to believers is that they begin to question the sovereign will of God. Have you ever noticed that? If God is so loving, why is he letting me suffer? I don't understand the point of this suffering. If God was sovereign, why, do, why doesn't he dot, dot, dot? Right? All of a sudden, believers of all ages begin to question the sovereign will and plan of God, because now all of a sudden our lives aren't lining up the way we thought they should be, right? And so all of a sudden, we may never admit it, but God is now remote, indifferent, and uncaring, because certainly if he was a God of love that we preach, that we teach, and that we sing about, he would certainly do something about our suffering. Another point of reference for me has been my wife's health. A testimony for us is people will come to me and say, how does she do it? Why does she not blame God for her condition? She's young. She has five children. She has all these things to live for. I said, because we have had to learn the hard way in a long process that part of the Christian dynamic involves suffering. Remember the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, 
And his goal is that I, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, but that I may fellowship with his suffering. Do you know what it means? That I may have intimacy with the Lord Jesus in the quadrant of my heart where nobody else can meet me. Wow. That's what Jesus wants for us. That's where Jesus can meet us. But you see, we don't get there unless we suffer. We don't get there. And people won't discover that they have that at their fingertips unless we go and do something about their suffering. What do you think Jesus' image of God was? What do you think his image was of, of, of his father? What was his image like? Well, think of one of his famous stories, his parables. How about this one? He saw God as a father whose son strayed off, but who stood day after day looking for him. And when he saw the boy coming home, couldn't contain himself, but ran out to throw his arms around him and welcome him back. That is what God is like. He isn't unfeeling or unpassive. He is compassionate, loving, and even suffers along with us. Listen to Psalm 56, 8. You have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Do you realize that God has counted and counts every tear that is shed? And are they not in your book? Wow. I don't know about you, but I am so glad that this is who the sovereign God of the universe is. Aren't you? If not, I'd be in big trouble. And do you realize, do you realize that the first thing that God feels towards the sinner is not anger, even though he is holy and just. No, the first thing God feels towards the sinner and towards those who have may have made a bad decision is compassion. Think of that, compassion. Well, the last part of this verse is a sheep without a shepherd. Matthew adds one other thing here, an explanation. Here's the explanation that underscores why Jesus felt compassion for the crowds. He says in Matthew 9, verse 36, because they were harassed and they were helpless. Look at this, like sheep without a shepherd. Do you know anything about sheep? Have you ever, have you ever tried to herd sheep? It's not very easy. In fact, if you were to talk to a zoologist or anybody who knows farm animals, they would say that a sheep, unfortunately, is the dumbest animal created. <laughs> and guess who, who we're referenced to? Sheep. Sheep. And so when we have this phrase, like a sheep without a shepherd, it's like they're wandering and they're lost and confused. So in other words, as much as Jesus felt for physical suffering, what most roused his compassion for the people around him was their spiritual confusion and disorientation. What most prompted the compassion of Jesus was their spiritual deadness 
What most prompted his compassion was their need for a savior. Jesus feels for ordinary folks like you and me. People who are stumbling along through life. Because Jesus has a heart for people. In whom sin has had its biggest impact. I really think today that the biggest problem that faces humanity isn't cancer, unemployment, political uncertainty, broken families, or even war, as real and as terrible as those things are. I think what our biggest problem is that without Christ, we are lost. Without Christ, we are lost. We are wandering around looking for answers. We are looking for love in all the wrong places. We're wondering how to make life work, being prosperous and yet not being happy. You see, Jesus felt for the crowds. Why? Because Jesus says they were like sheep without a shepherd. How is that for a description of the crowds that we see in our own world today? Mind you, the people in Jesus' day were religious. They had plenty of religion. But what they didn't have was a relationship with Jesus himself. The most basic human need is to be in relationship with the one who saves, right? The good shepherd. So in conclusion, and by the way, do you know what it means when a pastor says in conclusion? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Doesn't mean much. No, it will. I promise you it will. I don't, want to, I don't want to get the wrath of our pastors on me the first time. Here we go. So let's ponder this for a moment. Let's ponder this for a moment. A church after God's own heart is a church that reflects the heart of God and begins their mission with the fact that Jesus feels compassion for lost and hurting people. And because his heart goes out to a broken world, he wants us, his church, to go out in the world and do something about it. Many of you are familiar with the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And for lack of time, I'm not going to go to that passage, but in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, the city groups who are to discuss the sermons of the pastors can look there in discussion of this topic. Okay? But Dr. Stephen Davies states this. The Good Samaritan is presented as a model, not for getting into the kingdom, but how to act like our king. And in case you've forgotten, just in case we have forgotten, Jesus found you helpless and hopeless, empty and broken. Jesus saw you and had compassion on you. He stopped and he stooped to pick you up. He restored your life and put you on your feet. And then he paid all the bills for your spiritual care. And he's even promised to come back again to settle every account on our behalf. Isn't that exciting? I don't know about you, but I cannot wait for the return of the Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, now, right? I'm ready. It used to be when I was as young as these pastors, I wanted to wait because I wanted to see my kids grow up. I wanted to enjoy marriage. I wanted to see life. But you know what? 
Yes, those things are important, but boy, does that pale in comparison to the reward that we have, right? Are you not looking for that today? Who here is heaven-bound? I'm going to see a raise of hand. Are you heaven-bound today? Come on, don't be, don't be shy. Be heaven-bound, right? Because he lives, right? Amen. Everything he touches in your life leaves the evidence of love and a trace of grace. And I will leave you this. See, I told you conclusion didn't mean anything. <laughs> I, I'm going to leave you with this. John Sutherland, an officer in London's police department, explained this principle in forensic science called Lockhart's Principle of Exchange. Dr. Edmund Lockhart, who is known as the Sherlock Holmes of France, developed this principle that has, a, uh, that has a simple premise. Every contact leaves a trace. In other words, every criminal leaves a trace behind him. Where, wherever he steps, whatever he touches, whatever he leaves, even unconsciously, will serve as a silent witness. Not only his fingerprints or his footprints, but his hair the fibers from his clothes, the glass he breaks, the paint he scratches, the blood he leaves behind. This is evidence that does not forget that he was there. And Sutherland went on to explain then how this principle applies not only just to forensic science, but to human relationships. Every time two people come into contact with one another, an exchange takes place. Whether between lifelong friends or passing strangers, we encourage, we ignore, we hold out a hand or we withdraw it. We walk towards or we walk away. We bless or we curse. And every single contact leaves a trace. The way that we treat and regard one another matters. It leaves some kind of trace behind. The church that reflects the heart of God in compassion should be known as those who leave behind a trace of grace, the evidence of mercy, love, To God be the glory, great things he hath done. Thank you, church, for being my church and giving me the privilege and the honor to share the word of God with you this morning.